At that time, Judah left his brother and went down to stay with a man, Adullam, named Hera. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, went with him. When Tamar was told her father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with me, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. She gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the man who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock after all. I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I would give 
I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were two boys in her womb, and she was giving birth. One of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back, and back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Lord, we thank you for this time now. We thank you that you give us a word from yourself. And Lord, we pray that we would know more of you as we uh, read it and know more of your will for our lives. And we pray for your help to uh, understand and also to respond to you the right way in faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Old Parliament House, there is a photograph that shows a former Prime Minister of Australia, Gough Whitlam, and he's pouring sand into the hands of an Aboriginal man named Vincent Lingiari. Now, has that come up on the screen yet? There it is. That was the technical hitch we were sorting out before. Now, I don't know whether you voted for Goth or not, but uh, there he is in action. Now, that photo was taken in 1975, and it symbolised the return of land, in particular uh, the station at Wave Hill, back to some traditional owners. Eight years before that photo was taken, uh, there was a, a wage conflict that uh, grew up between the Gurindji people, if that's how you say it, the Gurindji people, uh, and a pastoral company owned by, it was a British pastoral company, owned by someone called Lord Vesty. And it was at the Wave Hill Station in the Northern Territory. So what began as a, a little wage uh, strike uh, grew. It had some small beginnings as they were complaining about the meagre rations they were receiving. And Vincent Lingiari, the gentleman in the photo, uh, was the one who took a stand and led his people on a walk-off, off the land, over this problem of low wages. But he didn't stop his uh, resistance there. He continued to lead his people in a struggle for land rights and also to be viewed equally under the law in Australia. And he said, we want to live on our land, our way. Well, eventually, this protest led to the Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act in 1976. And that gave Indigenous Australians freehold title to traditional lands in the Northern Territory. A popular singer-songwriter named Paul Kelly, some of you might have heard of him, uh, wrote a song about this story and he titled it From Little Things, Big Things Grow. And this is one of the verses from that song. He says, Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting, till one day a stranger appeared in the land. And he came with lawyers and he came with great ceremony and through Vincent's fingers poured a handful of sand. That's right. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. From a little wage strike became a whole land rights movement. Uh, and we're still seeing the effects of that today. Well, whether you think that's actually a good story or not, uh, the point of the story is that 
from humble beginnings, we see massive changes. Big results can unfold down the track. And Paul Kelly, I think, captures that idea in his title of his song, From Little Things, Big Things Grow. Now, I raise that because that's what we see also in the Bible, isn't it? From the very start, we see humble beginnings, but they have massive results that affect our lives, even some thousands of years later, and the blessing of all kinds of people throughout the world. Well, in Genesis, we've been looking at the story of Joseph last week. And as Scott spoke, we were left hanging as we saw that Joseph was sold into slavery and he headed down to Egypt. He sold off as a slave to an Egyptian man, a, uh, a fairly... Uh, probably wealthy man. He's the captain of the guard and he's named Potiphar. And we'll come and know more about Potiphar and his life with Joseph later on. But today the scene shifts, folks, as we start to look at Joseph. Uh, not so much Joseph, but we focus on his brother, Judah. So why is this story placed here? Why are we left hanging, wondering what's going to happen to Joseph, and now we're looking at his brother, Judah? Well, it's possible that it's been inserted here to build some suspense so that we find out, you know, once, uh, you know what's going to happen to Joseph. It just sort of adds to that suspense. But I think more importantly, we start to see some of the details of Judah's life and some of his offspring, which become like a silver thread that runs through the whole Bible and helps us to understand the storyline of salvation and blessing. As Joseph goes down to Egypt... Judah also goes down somewhere. He goes down to Canaan, the land of Canaan, to a place called Adullam, where we see trouble starts to develop in his family. He makes a Canaanite mate called Hira and marries a Canaanite woman who has three children to him. Now, Judah's already not cast in a good light because he's married some Canaanites and Esau, who came before him, uh, was seen how the Canaanite women made life difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. So we've already got suspicions in our minds about how great is this guy. Well, it turns out that the sons he have has aren't terrific characters either. In verse 6, we're told that Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Ur is described as a wicked person. And it's difficult to know what kind of uh, life he lived, whether he was a, a cruel person or whether he was a deceitful kind of guy or whether he was both. We're not really told, but we do know that on account of his wickedness, God chooses to take his life. The next son is Onan. We might be more familiar with Conan, who was uh, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the 80s, uh, Conan the Barbarian. Well, today we've got Onan the Canaanite, uh, and he's pictured also as another worthless character. Now, we're confronted in this passage with not quite a children's story, is it? Uh, here we're given what's called the sin of Onan. According to a custom of levirate marriage that's explained later in the law of Deuteronomy 25, if a man dies and leaves his wife without children, then the custom was that the brother, the dead man's brother, 
could be the one through whom children are born. And in this case, Onan had the responsibility to Tamar and to his deceased brother Ur to continue that family's line. But there's a problem, and we see it in verse 9 if you're following along. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He's not happy about this. The offspring aren't going to be his in fact. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Well, what was it that Onan did that was particularly sinful? Well, today's passage has been used at times in the past to condemn a particular contraceptive method. Some people have understood this passage to say that the problem was that Onan spilled his semen on the ground. That was the sin of Onan, they think. And they've concluded that it's that practice, that contraceptive practice, that's the problem. That's the sin of Onan, people have thought. But that interpretation has probably been uh, arisen more from other philosophical ideas that have influenced uh, people's thinking along the lines that sex is actually a negative thing and that it's for only for having children. For example, a well-known early Christian named Augustine held that view that I've just mentioned. Before he became a Christian, however, Augustine was impacted on by a group called the Manichaeans and they were so named after their founding father or teacher, Mani. It was a sect and they had some weird ideas. Some of their weird ideas were about how the human race developed uh, in relation to gods getting together. And consequently, they started to develop this idea that uh, men and women shouldn't have sex to produce children. They weren't against sex per se, uh, and I think they quite liked the, uh, the method that Onan used in this passage, but they were against the idea that children should be produced as a result of sexual intercourse. So in their sect, uh, I'm guessing they didn't have a lot of kids. <laughs> now, when Augustine was converted to Christianity, he reacted against that kind of teaching that he'd been under with the Manichees. For when he read Genesis 1 in the Bible, uh, he could see the passage that says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is God's command to people to have lots of children. And so Augustine began to go in the opposite view to the Manichees. And one could say he overshot. Furthermore, he was also conscious of the immorality that took place in the Roman Empire. And so he drew the conclusion that sex within marriage was only for producing children, full stop. And Augustine's approach has set the tone for thinking within the Roman Catholic Church ever since. And it's also been the basis for some comedians and skits, such as the Monty Python group today, where... If you're familiar with Monty Python, they sing a ridiculous song called Every Sperm is Sacred. Anyway, moving right along. But as we look at this passage more carefully, what we can see is that 
Onan's motives are explained. Did you see that in verse 9? It states that Onan didn't want a child who would not be his own heir. That's the problem. And that's what motivated his decision to use Tamar, but he didn't impregnate her. So in sum, the sin of Onan isn't so much, well, it's not, it's not the act of spilling semen on the ground, folks. That's not the problem. It's not that contraceptive method uh, which God is displeased by. Instead, it's his failure to carry out his duty to Tamar and his dead brother to continue that family's line. And it was that failure that displeased the Lord. So consequently, we can't use this passage as a proof text for condemning a particular form of contraception or birth control. But while we're on the topic, it's worth pointing out that the Bible has much to say or more to say about companionship between a husband and a wife. In particular, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul teaches about sex within marriage. And according to Paul, sex is not limited to the procreation of children. It's God's good design and it's bound up with binding marriage partners together. It's been said that sex is the glue that holds people together, holds marriage partners together. Well, now there's been a digression. We'll move straight back into Genesis and we'll have a look at the end game for Tamar. As I said, it's not, a, it's not really a, a children's story, this one, is it? Well, things have been turning out in a sad way for Tamar. She's lost a husband. Onan's failed to produce a child for her. And now we start to see that Judah is also losing his willingness to help her. We'll pick it up in verse 11 if you're following along. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah, which some have pointed out, it's an unfortunate name for a son, isn't it, to call him a Shelah. Uh, <laughs> live in my father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Well, poor Tamar, as a widow in that society, she's not going to receive any old age pension. Uh, she's facing a bleak bleak and a a difficult future as an old lady without people to care for her. And now the story takes a different turn because Judah's wife dies. And after a time of mourning for her loss, he goes with his Canaanite friend to be with those who are shearing his sheep. But Judah has dropped the ball of sorts. He's already promised his son in marriage, but he reneges. He seems to conclude that since son number one has died and son number two has died, this lady's like a black widow and he's going to see number three in the grave as well pretty soon. Well, he's drawn the wrong conclusion because we know that we're told that it wasn't the problem with Tamar. We've already been told that Ur and Onan were wicked and on account of that, the Lord put them to death. So Judah leaves Tamar in the lurch. But she's desperate and she decides to take matters into her own hands. We'll pick it up in verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself 
and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife, as his wife. And so it's clear to Tamar now that Judah has let her down. And now we start to see Judah's second failure, his moral failure. In verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a, goat, a young goat from my flock, he said. Well, this seems to be the um, ancient equivalent of leaving your wallet at home. Uh, but he's pretty keen. He's going to sort things out one way or another. Yet Tamar is smart, isn't she? She makes him accountable. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. She's probably decided that he's already promised things in the past and uh, hasn't given much of a pledge, so she's asking for a pledge this time. Verse 18, he said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, he answered. She answered, rather. So he gave them to her and he slept with her and she became pregnant by him. Well, the items that uh, Tamar asked, asked for were used to identify someone in the ancient world. Uh, his seal might have been a cylinder with a precious stone in it and some other symbols uh, that could be used to roll onto some soft clay uh, to identify someone. And the same cylinder would have, would have been hung around the, their neck with a cord. So she's asked for that as well. Furthermore, when they had a walking stick, at times the tribe might have had a particular symbol in the, in the top of the, on the stick, which identified the person with that tribe. Uh, as I was preparing this talk, I couldn't help but think of um, politicians who've been traced back to mischief with their credit card details. Well, this was the ancient equivalent of their credit card. In verse 19 we read, After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Well, Judah's keen to keep his pledge this time, isn't he? It's so that he can keep a low profile and not disgrace himself. But he doesn't keep the greater pledge to care for Tamar by means of his son's marriage to her. Now at this point in the story, it's pretty easy for us, isn't it, to have the moral high ground and to look down on Judah, isn't it? Uh, we can see this frank account of his life and his mistakes and the way he's falling short, and we can't endorse what he's doing. We can't endorse this kind of life. But Jesus still reminds us to be careful when we judge, doesn't he? This is what he says in Matthew chapter 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see more clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, it's not quite a speck perhaps with um, Judah. What he's doing is just wrong. But I think the, the message is the same from Jesus. We've got to be careful when we judge, we've got to look to our own heart first. And I mention this because each one of us are imperfect people, aren't we? Uh, we probably wouldn't really like um, our lives recorded in the scriptures as well. Uh, the secret things that we've done that we know are wrong in our whole lives. But as we think about our shortcomings and we can feel the guilt from that, we're also reminded that God knows. And we're reminded that that's why God has sent Jesus into the world to die and rise again for our sins. And that's what Paul reminds Titus of in chapter 3 verse 4 of Titus. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We've got hope. We are God's heirs. Not because of anything we've done that's righteous, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's a great comfort for us as we think about our lives that do fall short of God's will. Yet having been saved by God's trace, not God's trace, having been saved by God's grace, by trusting in Jesus, we're also challenged by Jesus to live God's way and to obey the spirit of God's law. That's the new life that we've been called to. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus said, You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So let's be people who don't look down so much on Judah but look to our own hearts first. That's the business end of the deal, isn't it? That's the challenge. May we be people who show that we're God's people through our actions, through our repentance. We show that we stand as those who have been saved. We're committing to, to live a new way. May God help us to be those who have the resolve to live his way, to be more consistent in working at our godliness. We've become part of his family. We've been adopted into it. We've been saved by grace. Now's the responsibility for us to work at that challenge of godliness. Well, as we know in the story, Tamar is now pregnant. And that's pretty obvious for all to see. But Judah also gets found out. I'll pick it up in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. It's interesting here to see Judah's attitude, isn't it? Especially given what we know about his actions. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. She added, see if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. 
Judah recognised them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah, and he didn't sleep with her again. Well, Judah's exposed. He's now speaking to the people in his community about his wrongdoing, and it seems that he's now been shamed into facing his sin. He can't avoid it now. She's brought out the credit card statement with his name on it. But I wonder how deep his confession really is. I wonder how genuine his sorrow for sin is. Does it lead to repentance? Or is it just a crocodile's tears, a sham? Well, in the final section, in this digression from the story of Joseph, we see the results of Judah's line and how it unfolds like a a silver thread through the rest of the Bible leading to salvation. Tamar has Judah's twin boys. Perez comes out first, despite the arm of Zerah poking out and having a red cord placed on it. And despite the messiness and the I guess the, the shameful way in which these twin boys have uh, come into the world, ultimately we can still see that God can work through all kinds of chaos and mess. God can still bring good and his plans out of even sinful actions. God ultimately works through the line of this man Judah, and he's not a great guy. Even at the end of Genesis, we start to see how God's plans take shape around Judah's offspring. Uh, In Genesis 49, we read, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. There's a line that comes from Judah that brings about the salvation of the world. It leads to King David. We've had these small beginnings, promises to Abraham in Genesis that God would bless his family. Cast your minds back to the start of this sermon. Remember that line from Paul Kelly's song, from little things, big things grow. And that's what we're starting to see in this part of the Bible. God's blessings coming through this family. It comes through the descendants of Judah. His descendants lead to David, king of Israel. And David's line leads to Jesus, the ultimate king and saviour of the world. Isn't that remarkable that Judah's descendants lead to the saviour of the world? We read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, about one of the elders speaking about his confidence that God has his hands in control of the world and its future. And he says to John, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's talking about Jesus, has triumphed. From little things, big things have grown. Well, as Christians, at times we might see God's hand at work in our lives when things are going well. Have you noticed that? Sometimes when things are going all right, we feel blessed by God. But At times, we want to know where God is in the midst of confusion and chaos. Well, today's passage reminds us that God is so big and so sovereign, he's so good, that even out of a dreadful life like Judah's, 
and kids born in those circumstances, even his plans can be pushed ahead, even through that sinful means. And so the take-home message from today's talk really is that God is faithful. He's in control, that he will bring about his plans and purposes. And he can do that even in spite of the sin and the wrong in our lives. Even though we sin, we still don't fall out of God's will. We can trust God to carry out his plans. We can take comfort in the fact that God is in control of all things, including our lives as well. And we can be grateful that God is putting into effect his plans for blessing and salvation for all kinds of people, including us. And these plans come by means of this line of Judah, which led to Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Jesus is the one who has triumphed. He's triumphed for our salvation. Well, that's probably a good place to wrap it up and close in prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we do thank you for your reminder in this um, story how you are so sovereign and so good that your plans can't be stopped even through sinful actions. Lord, as we read these things this morning, we're conscious that uh, none of us are perfect people either and that even in spite of our sin, uh, we enjoy your salvation and we stand uh, within your will as we hold on to Jesus, our Lord and Saviour and look forward to that hope of salvation at the end. Lord, we um, give you thanks that we stand in your grace and we live as your people. And Lord, we also pray that uh, you would continue to work in our lives and you would help us to be growing in godliness and to live consistently uh, Christian lives. Lord God, we pray for your help in that and we pray that you'd help us to persevere as your people until the end. Lord, we thank you for your goodness that you will bring about your plans and purposes and that you care for us. We thank you for Jesus who has triumphed, that he died and rose again for our sins, that we might know that we are assured of our salvation. And we do thank you for these good things and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.